0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang. I loved this conversation. In many ways, it's actually a conversation about how to have conversations, lest that sound irredeemably meta and academic to you. Let me just put this in context. It is my opinion, and I don't think this is super controversial, that one of the biggest problems in American public life right now is political polarization and toxic tribalism. Uh, We're not talking to each other. We're talking past each other. Arthur Brooks has thought deeply about this problem and is actually doing something about it and giving people constructive advice in these tough times. Uh, He spent 10 years as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C. He's now a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He also has an excellent podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show, and a new book, which is called Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And in this conversation, we talk about how to disagree agreeably, the danger of contempt, and what it, uh, how corrosive it is, both interpersonally and on a macro level in our culture, and his sometimes controversial relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is a fascinating thing to talk about. So a lot to get to with Arthur Brooks, and we'll get to it soon. First, two items of business. The first item of business is that there's a new meditation up on the 10% Happier app that is directly germane to the conversation you're about to hear. It's from Jessica Mori, one of – Uh, my favorite meditation teachers. And it's about having hard conversations. It's called Hard Conversations. Uh, That's the name of the meditation if you want to search for it. And uh, this is a meditation you can listen to before you get into a difficult conversation, which I suspect I will be using uh, on the regular now that I know it's there. So go check that out. The other item in business I want to get to is that a lot of you have reached out to me via email and text, and Twitter about Sharon Salzberg, one of the most respected, experienced, intelligent, and awesome human beings and meditation teachers in the world. Um, She's had a bit of a health crisis recently, so I want to read you what I think will be comforting words from her director of operations, Lily Cushman. This is a statement, it's very brief, from Lily. I'm sharing the news that Sharon went through a major health emergency uh, this past weekend, Uh, so that will have been, by the time you're hearing this, two weekends ago. She's now stable and on the path to a full recovery. She is receiving excellent medical care, and we are deeply grateful for all of the amazing work and dedication of her doctors, nurses, and hospital staff. It is truly remarkable. To take care of her health, Sharon will be taking a few months off from teaching so that she has the time and space to heal completely. We will be updating her calendar of events to reflect these changes in the next day or so. And for those of you directly impacted by these cancellations, we thank you for your patience and understanding. I know how many of you have a profoundly deep bond with Sharon and that this message is not an easy one to read. Rest assured that she will be back in action in no time and is surrounded by a tremendous support system during this time. So that's from Lily Cushman. I just want to say I don't have a ton of additional information other than to say that from what I've been able to gather from good sources, she really is on the road to recovery and in very good hands. So, Sharon, if you're listening to this, this difficult period, uh, if, if there's any silver lining, it is that um, you should hopefully be more acutely aware of the ocean of goodwill that exists out there for you, myself included. I and my family are sending you an enormous amount of love and i hope to connect to you soon i should also say that there's an enormous amount of goodwill coming specifically from the team at the 10% happier app where we all love Sharon and she is one of our founding teachers her and joseph goldstein so that's an update on sharon let's get back to uh, the show this week as mentioned the guest is arthur brooks i just want to read to you a few very quick lines from his bio just so you get a sense of of where he's coming from he is a best selling author a social scientist He was, until recently, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. His path to politics uh, was anything but typical. At 19, he left college to play the French horn professionally. He toured internationally and recorded several albums, eventually landing in the City Orchestra of Barcelona. In his late 20s, he returned to the United States and completed his bachelor's degree by correspondence. He went on to earn a Ph.D. in public policy, focusing on microeconomics and mathematical modeling. After completing his doctorate, he spent 10 years as a professor of public administration. He is now an in-demand speaker. He's a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times, a frequent radio and TV, and I should add podcast commentator, uh, a Seattle native. He's been married for nearly three decades to his wife, Esther, and they live in Maryland. I'm not sure if that's actually true anymore now that he's teaching at the Kennedy School, and they have three kids. So there's some background on Arthur. Let me stop talking and let you get To him, though, because he has some immensely useful and interesting things to say. So here he is, Arthur C. Brooks. Great to meet you. I've been following you in the Times for a long in the New York Times for a long time, and uh, then I heard you on Ezra Klein's podcast. You were great, and now I'm listening to your podcast, which is even greater.
1: Thank you, Dan, and thank you for having me, and for the incredible success of your Ten Percent Happier project, for the success of this podcast, but more importantly, for the success of the. The social enterprise of making a a happier human race. Thank you.
0: I pre- I'm doing my best. I know you are. I'm working yeah. on myself, uh, and uh, by extension, hopefully, everybody. All else. of us. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's a good and noble thing to do.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, how did you get interested in? How did a nice, you know, uh, center right uh, think tanker get involved in in meditation?
1: Uh, I'm I'm a practicing Catholic, and a big part of the Catholic faith. Something that's been central to Orthodox Catholic faith from for about a thousand years has been the practice of the rosary, and the rosary is is in what in the East you'd call chanting, but it's systematic prayer, it's memorized prayer. And one of the things that I was very interested in finding when I was as a social scientist was that this, the brain studies, the the functional MRI studies, showed that the same part of the brain is stimulated when they looked at nuns who had pra- who had uh, said the rosary faithfully. For many, many years, their brain scans looked just like the brain scans of Buddhist monks in Vietnam hmm. who had been chanting. What did this tell me? It told me that people can get incredibly good technique in the practice of meditation, notwithstanding the tradition that it comes from. So I thought to myself, hmm, I want to say my rosary, but I want to do it better. Now, I spend a lot of time in India for my for my work. and Why? Because I'm the president of a think tank. I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute. And we have a practice in, in foreign policy that's all over the world. And a big part of it is looking at India. India is one of the most interesting countries in the world if you want to understand democratic capitalism, if you want to understand human freedom and prosperity, because India is better every time you go. It's not perfect. It's still poor. But it's better every time you go. And so it's inspirational to actually see this laboratory of free enterprise – but in so doing, I've also gotten to know a lot of people, uh, Hindu and Buddhist leaders. I've become very close with the Dalai Lama, who lives in Dharamsala in the Himalayan foothills in India. I've also gotten to know Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, and I've been spending time of late with a man named Sri Nochar venkataraman who's a, a southern Indian guru. Uh, who lives in the compound started by Sri Ramana Maharshi, one of the most influential gurus of the the 20th century. Uh, And this is in the Hindu tradition. Exactly right. Um, But both the Buddhist and Hindu traditions, which are of course extremely different (laughs) from each other, bear certain similarities when it comes to the technique that they bring to meditation. And so by learning meditation techniques from the masters, from the people who have been practicing it for, in the case of the Hindus, up to 6,000 years – I have become. A, I have to say, the Hindu masters have made me a much better Catholic.
0: Well, uh, th- tell, tell me about how that would be.
1: Well, you know, because you're, you're 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 a meditator, yeah. and you're Buddhist, yes, that you, you're you become not just more peaceful, you become closer to truth when your meditation practice is is true and it is constant and it is disciplined uh, when you don't. When, when you meditate every day and you do it with sincerity and you do it with a, 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 a heart full of passion and love, that's when your meditation is actually most effective. That's the same thing in every tradition. But it turns out that that some traditions are much more effective in helping people to attain that because they have it more centrally located in their faith. That is certainly true in the Eastern religions. So when when I'm with very serious practicing Buddhists and Hindus – who are meditators, I find that they tend to be more adroit meditators than Catholics are. Uh, and in learning the techniques and learning the the way that they meditate and, and bringing it over to my own practice as a Roman Catholic, uh, I find that it's I, I feel closer to God. I No, no, I am closer to God.
0: What does your practice look like? I mean, what are you doing in your mind when you practice meditation on a daily basis now?
1: Well, the the Buddhists, the Tibetan Buddhists, which is the tradition I'm most familiar with, they, the, the Dalai Lama talks about uh, concentrated meditation, single point meditation, and and what Catholics would call mental prayer or. A uh, uh, meditation which is focused on a particular idea. These are different kinds of meditation, of course. One is actually thinking deeply about a passage in scripture, thinking deeply about an idea that we don't understand. The other is single point meditation, which is trying to take take away what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, you know, getting away so so that the the scattered thoughts can you can focus on something and. And attain greater peace uh, to understand your integral self in a better way. The same thing is true in the way that we that, that that I might pray as a Catholic. So when I'm praying my my Rosary, I'm focusing my thoughts. I'm bringing my monkey mind back to where I want it to be, which is focusing on on the and the, the Catholic Rosary is pa- passages from the New Testament while uh, praying the same prayer over and over again, prayers to the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's other kinds of meditation that I'll practice uh, each day as well, which is more dedicated toward thinking about something in sacred scripture, thinking about something that I've, I'm puzzling over. Uh, both kinds are absolutely are, are practiced and encouraged in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions, and, and both it turns out in the ancient Catholic traditions are, are are recommended as well. And I found I've had some I've had some advances and some a success, uh, particularly since going to India a lot in, in both of these as well.
0: So when you sit, uh, I don't know what time of day it is, but you say you're sitting in the morning, you start with the rosary? Yeah, I
1: start with the rosary generally because single point meditation uh, it is, is a really good thing. I don't know if in your practice you probably find that in the morning it's a it's a better time to do it. It centers you better for the day.
0: It really just is. It depends on what the, my day is yeah. looking like, or really, mm-hmm. some people are not morning people, right? And I, for them, I, I would say don't try to force right. it in the morning because then you're going to have a hard time. I'm
1: not a morning person, but it turns out that I have time in the morning, and, and so therefore, right. yeah. I mean, again, the key thing is discipline in a lot of these things. It's not having it crowded out. It's remembering what's important to you. And my faith is very important to me. Uh, so therefore. I want to practice my faith and I want to f- I practice it in the most effective way that I possibly can. And, and, and so that means setting aside time for it the same way that I do exercise.
0: I'm always interested when, when sitting with people of faith, uh, as speaking as a uh, sort of a respectful agnostic mm-hmm. myself. Sure. Um, as a economist, social scientist, who's got a demonstrated predilection for intellectual rigor, right. what, is, what is it that allows you to make the leap of faith? to be so sure that there is a God.
1: Well, nobody's sure. And that's actually the mystery of faith. People always talk about the mystery of faith. They never really pay attention to what that means. The mystery of faith is, is, is believing something or living as if you believe something, notwithstanding the fact that these are non-testable hypotheses. Most of the life that we go through from day to day, I mean, it's like, I'm going to take a left at the corner here. Why? Because my data tell me, which is the database in my head, the experience I've had coming to work, my car, show me that taking a left is usually faster than going right, for example. That our life is empirical, right? That what you do as a journalist is based on empirical regularities. That's called experience, right? But there are certain things that are non-testable hypotheses. There are certain things that where you might be wrong. And the mystery of faith is to say, I will, in this area of my life, suspend my disbelief for something that I think is good and true and right, and and, and this is what I want. And doing that is a, is a little bit of war with yourself. <laughs> and and this is something I, I talk a lot about with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. The idea of being at war with yourself is incredibly important. It sounds violent. It sounds terrible. It sounds unpleasant, but it isn't. But that turns out to be true mastery. But to say, look, if I don't see evidence of something, I'm just not going to do it. That's to be... A slave to the stimuli in your environment forever, and so to 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 grab the mystery of faith in some area of your life is to say, no, 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 I'm I'm going to be in charge here.
0: Yeah, but okay, I'm just trying to think if I agree with that because I have a hard time believing in anything I can't prove. Maybe that's right. because I'm a slave to the stimuli in my environment. Almost certainly, I am. Nonetheless, I would still have a hard time. Uh, subscribing to a belief system that was, you know, some, some books that were written in the Bronze Age uh, and saying, okay, these are revealed wisdom from uh, the divine creator and I'm going to live my life according to this code. I, I, I respect, I mean, I will have a lot of friends who are people of faith. Right. Uh, and I, uh, so I don't say that with... You're probably
1: your grandparents were.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Not my parents, but my grandparents. Yeah, you know, that's classic. I yes. mean, you're,
1: So you and I are more or less the same age. You're a little bit younger than I am. And, and your, your grandparents, when did your family come to the United States?
0: In the early part of the, of the 20th century.
1: Okay, so they were in Russia, probably, or someplace. Yes. And there's like the like, Ukraine. Yeah, the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? If it was Russia or Ukraine. Who knows at that time? Yeah, right? well, it depends
2: what, what pogrom was Exactly
1: happening. right. You know, and they're like, the, this shtetl is not that great. I'm out of here. Yes. Basically, right? Yes. And they came to the United States, and they were probably responsible for being at the center of a Jewish community and part of ethnic Jewish life. Was the practice of the faith was living by the law, and by the time your parents came along, they said, well, "I don't need it that much." And I went then, to med
0: school. I think we're disabused of any notions they might have had. Yeah,
1: and then Dan comes along and says, "I want something a little bit deeper." Whether you're practicing Buddhist meditation or whether or not you're keeping the high holy days, and 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 then and then who knows what Dan's kids are going to do. <laughs> <laughs> who knows your your, your son might be a rabbi. <laughs> you
0: know? I highly doubt it. He's only one quarter Jewish. I, I married a, uh, uh, I married out of the faith. So Still, I mean, you never so, rule it out. He, I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, he could. He could. He'll. I don't know. Who knows what he's going to? Right now, I'm trying to just get him to stop pooping in his pants. But, no, I got uh, it. But
1: God's got a sense of humor. You know, it's a future <laughs> rabbi. <laughs> you're changing his diaper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so what allows you I mean and why is it so important to I guess I'm asking two questions at the same time but w- w- you you said before that it's so important to be at war with yourself and I and you said you talk about this with the Dalai Lama. Yeah. What does he say to that because I don't know that doesn't sound very Buddhist to me.
1: Well, to begin with, he's it's, it's very Buddhist to say that it's the it's the idiot's paradise to follow if it feels good, do it. Because basically, if it feels good, do it. Is nothing more than a biological imperative to pass on your genes. That's why things, why you're pushed internally to do things, is because of these biological imperatives. I mean, money, power, pleasure, fame—these are always that we. These are things that we try to accumulate, not because they're going to make us happy, and not because they're going to help other people, but because they make us more likely to, to, to propagate the species with our own genetic footprint all over it, right? And so to say, okay, there's a difference between being successful genetically and being a happy person. This is almost self-evident. I mean, you'd have to be somebody who's utterly unreflective to to rec- to, to believe that that's not the case. I mean, the world around you tells you to to, you know, use people, love things, worship yourself, right? I mean, the, the good life is to love people, use things, and in my view, Worship God. That's the road to happiness, and the road to happiness is different than the road to genetic success, okay? And, and the Dalai Lama recognizes that. Everybody recognizes that who's actually reflecting on these types of things. Okay, so so what that means is that if you're not at war with yourself, you're losing. How are you losing? You're not going to be happy. <laughs> Look, I want to be 10% happier. So do you. I, I, how do I know that? Because that's the name of your show. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be 10% happy, happier unless you have this little bit of truth that's working in your life, which is that you're happy. The 10% happiness means not doing the thing and some of the things that you're being pushed to do when you're not thinking. That's what I mean by being in conflict with yourself in a very beautiful way. That's why we we teach our kids to be at war with themselves a little bit in a beautiful way. It sounds... It sounds almost as if it were an, it were unnatural, but it's the most natural thing ever.
0: No, I buy everything you just said now that you say it that yeah. way. I just don't know how that gets you to believing in God. Mm.
1: It doesn't necessarily get you to believing in God. It doesn't have to get you there at all. Uh, the truth is that we have a, uh, a very imperfect understanding of the universe, you and I do. Um, if we had a perfect understanding of the universe, we wouldn't be trying to figure out how to be 10% happier. It would be an exact science. It would be like turning on the tap and water coming out. So, so all of us have been struggling for forever to actually figure out what the secrets are what the what the the, the equations are that that we're trying to put in place. And and, and by the way there's nothing strange about this. Physics is, a, is an incredibly inexact science. People thought that when Newton came up with his laws that, the, that well, these were the once and eternal laws. Well it turns out that Einstein invalidated Newtonian physics. It showed that Newton, Newton was wrong. It doesn't mean that he was crazy it didn't mean that you couldn't still use newton's equations as as an approximation of what's going on in the natural world but but einstein showed that it was nothing more than approximation and and we will come to a point where we understand that einstein was wrong too that's where we're going to get well the truth is we don't know about what the the there is a truth underlying the spiritual regularities of the universe there is a truth under there someplace we don't know what it is. As a Catholic, I don't know what it is. You as a Buddhist, you don't know what it is. We're just doing the best that we can. We're, well,
0: can't you just be comfortable not knowing it rather than assigning? Yeah, the, I could be
1: comfortable not knowing. I just choose to. I just choose to act as if I did know. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't mean I'm right. I might be wrong. I might be completely delusional.
0: So it's faith with humility. Of
1: course, and there's nothing. I mean, the humility is supposed to be central to the Christian faith. It's supposed to be central. We got and we got that from our from our older brothers and sisters the Jews. I mean, that's actually part of being in harmony with what we believe is God's law, but it's also an incredibly prudent thing to be. I mean to be to to be uh, prideful to not be humble about what we know is to is to turn our back on all of the all of the the realities that we face from day to day. I'm, of course I might
0: be wrong. I've seen faith done both ways though yeah. I've seen it done with a lot of dogmatism <laughs> and I've seen it done with a lot of wisdom and humility. yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I, I prefer the latter.
0: So do I. Uh, how did you become friends with the, the Dalai Lama? So,
1: is a beautiful thing, actually. Um, I, I had a list when I was as president of AEI, and for for listeners who are not, you know, paying attention to the Washington D.C. think tanks, I like to say, you know, congratulations, you know, you're doing something with your life that's <laughs> important and good. Um, but but those of you who do know something about AEI, I know that AEI is a public policy think tank dedicated to mostly foreign policy and economics and social policy in Washington D.C., making better. Making politicians better off at making public policy. Fair to describe it as conservative. Uh, yes, yeah, Senator right, But free, free, free enterprise oriented, American strength oriented, nonpartisan. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm, you know, I'm just a guy who thinks that democratic capitalism is, on balance, good for people. And that's what that's kind of how my how my how my colleagues see it. But one of the things that we don't do is religion, spirituality, and. <laughs> but I had a list of people I thought it would be so interesting to talk about the morals of democratic capitalism with this list of people and to get in front of audiences that have never heard that. And number one on my list was the Dalai Lama. I love his writings. I've read his books. I admire him. (laughs) And and, and so I said, huh, I'm going to try to go to where he lives. He has a monastery in Dharamsala, India, and I'm going to see if I can get an audience with him. And I'm going to ask him if he'll come to Washington, DC and discuss this with me in front of an audience of, you know, on television and with an audience of politicians and, the people who have power in in the public policy system in 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 America, and, and and it was interesting. You, I spent an hour and a half talking to him, and and he's he's lovely and he's sweet. And at the end of the hour, he said, "So you love free enterprise?" I didn't want to say, "Well, I don't want to say I love it." I mean, <laughs> I think it's a pretty good system, but. But I said, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to waste time here. I'll say, yeah, your holiness, that's right. And he says, I I am a Marxist. And I thought, ugh, you know, I came all the way here. But he goes on and he says, but I do not believe in the forced government sharing. I believe in voluntary sharing is the basis of human morality. I said, man, it's exactly what I think too. I don't care if it's called free enterprise or Marxism. I believe that sharing the bounty that we have, that finding systems that 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 bring that lift people up at the margins of society, that bring people together in unity, that create great, greater solidarity and brotherhood, that can give us more love. That's what I'm all about. And, and, and whether we call that whether we call that Marxism or free enterprise or or anything else. I want more of it, and I said, "Would you come and talk about this with me in Washington D.C.?" And he said, "Yes," and he came, and we've been working together ever since.
0: But it was it was controversial when he came.
1: Yeah, I yeah. Mean, you know, both Van- took some heat for it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well, I don't think. I mean, he's
1: a Dalai Lama. He doesn't take heat. I mean, he's he deflects heat. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a it's like a shield that deflects. He's like a spacesuit or like one of those
0: world. superheroes who the more heat you. Send their in their direction. The stronger they get. That's
1: unbelievable. I mean, it's every everything helps the Dalai Lama. He's, he's, uh, he's a great man. Um, yeah. So the the Vanity Fair had this really funny uh, headline. Said, "Why is the Dalai Lama uh, uh, visiting the right wing American Enterprise Institute?" And the the truth is because peace and justice and compassion are his thing, and he wants to talk about it with everybody, and that's a good thing. I mean, this is the lesson the non-spiritual the policy lesson that the Dalai Lama brings to all of us which is you got to talk to everybody this idea of deplatforming certain people closing yourself off from conversations with certain people disparaging certain people because of your preconceived notions of who they are what they think it's a it's a it's a built-in mistake you you i realize that some people seem beyond the pale but so many times we assume that and that we're wrong i'm writing a book right now called love your enemies and it's really dedicated to the spirit that I've gotten from working with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, the,
0: how many books are you working on? I'm working on books. You know, it's, it's
1: like I run a think tank, man. And also, by the way, stepping down from the think tank and going back to the university um, next summer. So, Which university? Harvard. Okay, um, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a small college in in Boston, and and I'll be I'll be have more time to to work on multiple projects. But this this project, love your enemies. Basically, is the wrong title insofar as the people who disagree with us, they're simply brothers and sisters who disagree with us. Mm. They're not our enemies, and so therefore, we have no reason not to love them. And that was a concept that I got from the Dalai Lama himself.
0: I want to get into – because you have this excellent new podcast really talking about how to disagree agreeably. But, I want, but before we get into that, let's stay on the economic tip for a second yeah. because you talked about voluntary sharing being the basis. Okay. If if the government is not involved, how can we make sure that the sharing happens?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, it's – we can take it to the point where we say because voluntary sharing is, the, is the, sort of the sine qua non of moral excellence that we shouldn't have any welfare programs. And I think that's wrong. I think that's actually wrong because we have public goods. I mean, we, we have a, a preferences as a society where we don't want people to fall through the cracks. Or we don't want people to be too poor. And what we're saying basically is we want to share, but we just don't have good mechanisms for doing it through alms giving, alms for the poor. And so therefore we've found an excellent way of doing it, which is government redistribution and welfare programs. My, and, and the only thing that, by the way, that's ever made that possible is the bounty that's come from capitalism. The first time in human history that societies can be rich enough that we have an overflow that we can pay to support people we've never met through government means, which is the greatest achievement of capitalism, I think actually, believe it or not, is the welfare state. And and we, we need to fund that. We need to fund it generously and seriously, and particularly in a way that doesn't create incentives that demobilizes people and makes them feel not unneeded but in our isn't society. Isn't
0: orthodoxy in some quarters on the right that the welfare state is a massive, fiery failure?
1: Well, the welfare state as we've as we've configured it certainly has problems. So, what I would say that the orthodoxy on the right, if there is one, and you know,
0: <laughs> the right is 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 it's, it's not a, a monolith.
1: Yeah, it's a mess. It's like the left. I mean, that's the great thing about America is that you know when you say right or left it doesn't mean anything. I mean, what we have is our opinions, and we have our neighbors, and we have. Conversations. <laughs> we also <laughs>
0: and, unfortunately have our biases, yeah, and totally tribes, yeah,
1: yeah, totally, totally, and and that is particularly a problem right now. But one of the beautiful things about the United States is that people have a sort of a fungibility in their views, and they change. I mean, I'm I'm really ideologically very different than my own family, and my parents were different than their parents, and it was no problem. We all love each other, and we
0: always got along. Although, as you talk about in your podcast, there have been moments where your parents were worried that you might be. Voting for Republicans. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like deep, deep, you know, secret, you know, family. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but but it never created a problem. Right. It was just sort of, why are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't, you can't come to Thanksgiving. So to the extent that there's some orthodoxy in the right, it's the same as orthodoxy on, you know, thinking people on the left, which is that everything in these public policies hasn't been perfect. And it has had some some side effects that have been really deleterious. And I give you an example. We've spent $23 trillion on on welfare programs since Lyndon Johnson kicked off the War on Poverty. Now, the War on Poverty was kicked off on April 24th, 1963, uh, when he went to this place called Inez, Kentucky at town in Kentucky. And, and, and he said he's, he was the master. I mean, this guy was great. He had all these photographers from Life Magazine and, and writers from Time Magazine with him. And, and he went up on a guy's porch and he, he said, tell me your story. And it was a guy who said, you know, I'm having a job in five years. I got eight kids. I got a first grade education. And he was poor. His kids were malnourished. And he walked off the porch and he said, today I declare a war on poverty. Our goal is total victory. And man, you would have cheered. Because it was great and it was a time of promise and he came back to Washington. The guy he put in charge of the war on poverty uh, was Sergeant Shriver, uh, was JFK's brother-in-law and w- incredibly great American. A guy who just, you know, he, he had a love for the poor. He had a, a belief in America he was totally patriotic and he said that the goal of, the, and here's the, here's the crux, here's where conservatives and liberals can agree. The goal of the war on poverty, he said, is dignity, not dole's. Yes. And that should be the goal that we still have today. But the, the problem is that it's not that there are too many doles. It's just that we've executed a lot of these programs in a way. We have you know, 80 welfare programs, depending on how you count them, and a lot of them are internally in conflict. A lot of them have created incentives for people to not work and have created dependency, and and that's not created dignity. And if we believe that we are a brother's keeper, that we should be lifting people up, that everybody deserves dignity, then they need to be needed, and we need to do it differently. That is not to say that we need to get rid of welfare programs. My view, that's insane. We need to do it better, remembering that we need dignity. We should demand dignity for every person.
0: So what about Medicare for All?
1: Medicare for All is a is a policy that's ruinously expensive and as configured, which is to say basically a single payer system, a la Canada or Spain or UK or something, um, would be hard to execute given the fact that even those programs that they're modeled on aren't working very well. <laughs> So the idea of Medicare for all is a slogan. It's a kind of a bumper sticker. What we want is better it's medical like the care. Build the wall. It kinda, yeah, kinda. And it and it, it makes people insane when they talk about it a little bit. You know, on the right, they get all really angry about it without thinking about it. On the left, they say, well, if you don't like it, it means you must you, hate, you must hate poor people in their health care. If we have a commitment to making sure that people have adequate uh, uh, and. Uh, Healthcare. They have access to adequate health care, and everybody does. I believe that we have way better ways to get that done than mm-hmm. something like Medicare for all, which would be deleterious for not just economic prosperity but would lead to two- and three-tier systems that we probably wouldn't like.
0: So what would be the way to get it done? I didn't bring you in here to have yeah, to detailed have a big health. Yes, but, um, but I
1: have an answer, yeah, okay, and the answer good. is go to AEI.org. I mean, that's why God created the American Enterprise Institute is to actually answer questions like this. Actually, that's not part of my theology. <laughs> that's a slogan, too. Um, but AEI, my think tank, was created to answer exactly those questions. You know? And so we have, we have 280 scholars and staff dedicated to saying, here are the seven things that you need to do not to zero out health care for poor people, not to claim that poor people shouldn't have health care like rich people do. But to do it in ways that are compatible with market mechanisms, so that we can do it without without ruining uh, um, our budgets, without while it's still affordable, and at the same time working with markets, so that we can continue to have uh, a really innovative healthcare system that serves everybody.
0: As somebody who describes himself as center right, curious, what's your view on Donald Trump? Did you vote for him? Um,
1: I yeah, it's a I'm not a Republican, and uh, I don't actually do work on politics at all. Um, I usually I don't talk publicly even about how I vote. Um, I've, I don't think I've voted for, I don't think I've ever voted for anybody who's won the presidency as a matter of (laughs) fact. No, no, that's not true. You're a big Michael Dukakis fan. Yeah, no, that's not true. I did vote for Michael Dukakis. I did vote for Michael Dukakis and, and I thought he was a very fine man. I still do think he's a very fine man. I saw him on the plane the other day, I think. Maybe somebody looked like him. Um, I voted for George W. Bush twice, actually, um, and, was, and and I was proud to do it. And, and I think he was – nobody's a perfect president, but I really admired him as a person. I still do. Um, a lot of people do. Um, but the truth is that the, the the politics of it are not nearly as important to me as what I do in public policy. And what I do in my work outside, where the work that I do on happiness, the work that I do on spirituality, the work that I do on – on human flourishing is not political at all either. It's funny, you know, when, when you do work in a think tank in Washington, D.C., politics is like the weather. Ideas are like the climate. And when you're a, a 501c3 think tank uh, in Washington, D.C., you should be doing climate work, mm. not trying to read, read, read the weather report but it's you a but you're mistake. still
0: subjective. I mean you as an individual. Oh, I have political get rained views. on, yes. Yeah, yeah, so I have
1: political views for sure, but professionally where my passion is and where my professional life is is I'm a nerdy clients, a climate scientist. And all the people who are working with me at AEI are nerdy climate scientists. Right. It's it's a beautiful place to be.
0: So I'm more asking you as a individual you know somebody who's interested in yeah. human flourishing and all these philosophical and uh, contemplative issues that we're going to be talking about today. I'm just curious, given I know you're focused on climate, but on the weather, uh, you know, how do you feel about how what Donald Trump's doing in Washington these days?
1: You know, it's the some of the policies and some of the personnel I like. You know, as a, as a center-right guy, I mean, I certainly like Brett Kavanaugh. I think he's going to be a great Supreme Court justice. Um I are like,
0: recording this on a day when he's on day one of yeah, his hearing.
1: exactly so. right. And there's no – I mean, this is not exactly controversial. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who's likes a lot of the things that Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh has said. We'll see what kind of a justice he turns out to be because that's kind of the, how you play the game. And that's great actually because they, he should be able to think for himself and judge cases for himself. I think he'll probably be confirmed. I think that's great. I like a lot of what uh, the administration has done with respect to deregulation uh, because I think it's it's helped to, to to set the economy free. I don't think that that is single-handedly responsible for the economic prosperity that we're seeing today. I think that the economic trends started during the last uh, couple of years of the Obama administration. So I don't think that Obama was unilaterally bad or completely wrong on the things that he was doing. I think that the economy was on the upswing and it continued and maybe accelerated a little bit when Donald Trump took over because of his economic policies. So again, I'm not an absolutist uh, on either side of this kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in favor of a lot of the things that he's doing along these lines. Um, nobody who's thinking about politics in America today – is going to look at any politician. I know a lot of liberals who liked Barack Obama a lot and they didn't like a lot of the things that he was doing, didn't like a lot of the things that he was saying, and it's normal. It's normal. I think it's actually good to have a nuanced view of these particular politicians. And I think it's actually good to, it's healthy to be able to say, I didn't vote for that guy and I like some of the things that he's doing. Or I did vote for that guy, there's a lot of things I don't like. If if we're not saying those things, I don't think that we have a, a nuanced enough view of
0: politics. So you're saying I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I do like some of the things he's doing. Yeah. I don't think most people in America are. Well, I don't think we hear from a lot of people in America right now who are expressing nuanced views. Yeah. I don't know that most Americans don't hold them, but the nature of the dialogue right now is not. Nuance is not one of the words I would use to describe the dialogue in America right
1: now. Yeah, that's right. And a big part of that is that the dialogue is being driven by people who are interested in manipulating Americans for their own money and power and profit. That's what's going on. And I'm talking about the media, and I'm talking about certain, uh, especially salient voices in politics today, that basically say if you don't come down on this tribe or on that tribe, that you're wishy-washy. You actually need to, to define yourself, you have to show sufficient moral outrage for the other side. Now, I think that's not a majoritarian position at all. I think that most people are tired of being used and manipulated by interests that that tell them that they need to be hostile toward their fellow Americans. You know, I think it's it's shocking and squalid that we can't love our neighbors, even though that we disagree with them. I think it's crazy, as a matter of fact. And and fortunately, by the way, I read the data. I think that about seventy percent of Americans agree with me. I think that that seven in ten Americans, thereabouts, give or take six or eight, I don't know. Um, refuse to hate their neighbors and they're looking for an alternative them that they will scratch the itch it's like poison ivy of you know turning on cable news at night to get really really fired up <laughs> they will they'll read their favorite columnist in their favorite paper who says that the other side is filled with knaves and fools but you know deep in their souls they know that it's just simply simply not true that there are people who will who who can make millions of dollars and become very famous and very powerful by getting people to fight each other, but I think that it's, I think that we're actually ready for more peace.
0: Well, you've been doing wonderful work on this, mm. and you've got this at this point, as we record this relatively new podcast, uh, the Arthur Brooks Show, mm. in which you've. Um, I like the
1: I like the name by the way. It's like I had to get Saatchi and Sachi. <laughs> <see what he, laughs> it's very yeah. innovative. Very innovative. Well, well it definitely
0: right. you know it's it's honest. Let's say yeah. It definitely and I've been listening to this show. Well, first. I spent, in preparation for meeting you, I, I re-listened to your excellent interview with Ezra, and then I've been, I'm have halfway through this first season of your show. So I feel like I've been living with you for the last couple of days. Yeah. It's a really, it's quite a lovely, it's very well produced. Thanks. Um,
1: Vox Media does a very good job with the podcast, and it's a new experience for me. I mean, you've been in broadcasting your whole career. Yeah. Uh, and. And and you have a level of comfort. I mean, just everything that you do, it makes it feel like you're sort of born with a microphone. And you're but and for, for me, it's a little tricky because the idea of reading something and have it sound conversational. That turns out to be really super hard. I was
0: wondering because you know you do sound kind of conversational, but I also thought there was it was too clean not to have been read. So you're doing a good job. Well,
1: I appreciate that, and I think it got better over the course of the first season, which is eight episodes. It got easier. It's just reps. You know, I used to make my living as a classical musician. So the whole, yeah, yeah, for the first twelve years of my career after I dropped out of college, I was a, a French horn player. And everything about classical music is pure technical domination that you get through reps. Yes, And so the result of that is I learned how to get a new skill. And the way to get a new skill is to slow everything down to the point that people can't recognize what you're doing. That means if you have to say something, you have to give a speech, you're going to read the first three lines of it, do it so slowly that people can't even recognize what you're saying. And that will give you... As a set of synaptic skills That's to do right. it well. And then reps. Yes. Gotta get your reps. Gotta get your reps. I
0: recently relearned how to swim. Really? And I had to do this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just break the stroke down to its component parts and Exactly and do, right. do these weird drills and then it become then it somehow gets baked into your neurons yeah. and you you do it without And the things. same thing
1: is true by the way for meditating. Yes. The same thing is true. It's yes. all reps and, and going slowly. Yes. I mean, you're watching your breaths, and it's this is how technique actually works. So the same thing with actually learning how to do a podcast. Same thing with a new job is is getting mastery. Actually, comes from the ballistic movements that come by bypassing your medial prefrontal cortex, so that you can go from from what you see to what you do without saying, "Okay, now I'm going to put you know my hand here." If you tried to swim that way, you'd you'd sink and drown. It all falls apart. It all Absolutely. falls apart. And and so and that's what you're doing. I mean, right now you're. I mean you're interviewing me right now with complete ease. You're not thinking about it at all. I mean it's like it's it's, it's as if cuz this this is what you've been doing for years and years and years. Except
0: I am having the problem that you're actually sufficiently interesting that there are about 73 things I want to ask you and I'm trying not to forget them. Oh okay, so, so we're, we're going is, that's the lack of ease. If there's any lack of ease that's what it well, is. Well
1: I'm not I'm not I'm not ascertaining it. And so but but with the podcast that's what I've tried to get is the reps. And you know we're we've now gone through the first season it's finished and we're going to start planning out the second season and what the theme is going to be in the second season. I don't know yet, but um, it's going to be in this realm of people getting along, people loving each other more. I'm especially interested in this concept that we have of, of love and the fact that we have a love deficit in our country. I'm looking at these data, Dan, that are blowing my mind.
0: How do you define love? Well, there's, of
1: course, a, a bazillion ways to do it. But there are some that are really, really obvious. And one thing that's really been amazing me of late is looking at the data on people in their 20s today in romantic love. Okay, so that's a pretty easy one, right? Yes. It's got physiological implications to it that we can see in fMRI studies and you know, hormone levels and, and brain activity. But more importantly, it's just how you feel. And we, we all know what that feels like. And and these studies show that people are significantly less likely to be in love who are in their twenties today than people were when they were when you and I were in our twenties. Man, I want to know why. Because that's a big attenuation of human happiness. If you want to be ten percent happier, loving ten percent more is a good way to get there.
0: I didn't fall in love romantically. I don't think until my thirties.
1: Did you not? No. That's that's and, and it was only ever with one woman who's today your wife, and that's she's right. listening to this. Yeah. And that's, that's it happens awesome. to be true. And she won't it. listen to this just for the record. She won't listen no, to it. no she my doesn't. wife won't be listening to this either and it's absolutely <laughs> true too. I, I never I fell in love with my wife and all, almost overnight when I was 24 years old within seconds. I'm convinced. We didn't speak the word of the same language. What at all. language? Is,
0: oh, she's Spanish if I recall.
1: She's Spanish, yeah. she's Catalan. So she speaks Spanish and Catalan. We met in France at a concert. She was in the front row of a concert that I was playing.
0: And you were trying to focus on the French horn and look at Yeah, because
1: at no, no, no. I had like, a complete mastery. <laughs> so I was focusing on the girl in the front row. And, uh, and and she's smiling at me. I'm like, that's weird, man. And I went up to talk to her, not one word of English. And I thought to myself, it's weird. It's so crazy. I thought, I'm going to marry this girl. And I went home and I told my dad. My dad's in Seattle. I'm from Seattle. I called him up and said, Dad, I met the girl I'm going to marry. And he says, that's great. When can we meet her? And he says, well, it's, uh, she's uh, got a few problems. Uh, She doesn't speak English. uh, She doesn't live in America. And she has no idea I'm going to marry her. And I don't want like a restraining order. (laughs) And so I just went, I started this project, this sort of startup project of trying to convince her. And I wound up having to quit my job and move to Spain and take a job in in the Barcelona Orchestra to, to show enough commitment that I could close the deal.
0: That sounds both amazing and also a little crazy.
1: It's insane. It is insane. But look, I mean, everybody who's listening to us who's an entrepreneur knows that that's exactly the story of people who start companies. It's the same story. Why? The point is, and this is is something that, that I've been thinking about of late and writing about a little bit, your life's a startup. Your life is your enterprise. All of these resources under your disposal, each one of us has to think about that. That's the reason that it's so alarming to me when I see less romantic love for people who are in their 20s, which is the most entrepreneurial period of your life. When I see less romantic love, I see less personal startup activity in people's lives. Less passion. Yeah, less passion. But it's the same thing. Whether you're going to start a software company or you want to start on biotech or whether or not you want to get this person to marry you. It comes from the same entrepreneurial impulse in a lot of ways. That's And that's the life in life. That's the, It sounds crazy to you and me, but but look, you've done something crazy.
0: Tell me. Tell me the crazy thing that you did to get your wife to love you. Um, what did I do to get my wife to love me? That was crazy. It was pretty boring. I just took her on a bunch of dates. <laughs> I think in some ways I probably did a lot of stuff that was to – self-destructive and tried to drive her away in some ways because I wasn't I was less evolved then than I am now although I'm still doing lots of dumb stuff I don't know that I did crazy things until actually we the 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 best version of me I don't know if it's crazy really came out once we're in relationship and we had to deal with challenges together and I got forced to stretch beyond what you know uh, beyond the selfish default mode yeah when she got breast cancer yeah. Or when we had massive infertility struggles. Yeah. Um, and it brought you closer together. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and I, as somebody who's really, truly, I think, wrestled with selfishness on yeah. a big level, had to get out of my uh, own way to, to be of service.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. That's, when, not, that's not
0: an answer to your question, but, it is a good, but that's Actually, it's a very I good go. answer
1: to my question. It's a perfect answer to my question because entrepreneurs, when they talk about the key moments in their enterprise – they never talk about early success. They always talk about what they did when there was threat. Mm-hmm. So, so a guy I really admire and like is Bernie Marcus, who started Home Depot. And when Bernie Marcus tells you the story of Home Depot, he doesn't talk about the first billion. He talks about when he opened his first store on Peachtree Street in Atlanta, nobody would come in. And so we had to have his kids out on the on the street, you know, handing out $1 bills just so people would walk in the store and how his wife wouldn't let him shave alone because in the bathroom because he had a razor blade and you never know what was going to happen. I mean, these are the stories that entrepreneurs actually tell and the things that made them strong and the things that, that helped them learn. You, you, The truth is that your strength is your weakness and the weakness that that is exposed, which is your selfishness and how you deal with it in these moments of threat are what create the, the strength in the enterprise that... The enterprise of Dan's life is his family. That's your startup too, and and this, these are these pivotal moments. You just told me the Bernie Marcus story of your little Home Depot of your marriage, mm-hmm. and and these are the things that are really really important. You know, this is these are the make or break things that make you an entrepreneurial person.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. It's such a, it's such a, and maybe I'm reading this incorrectly, but yeah, you know, somebody who is both and I'm talking about you here, mm. a contemplative and a conservative. You say center-right, but let's just say conservative yeah, whatever. for a second yeah. it sounds more mellifluous. Um, <laughs> uh, and
1: mellifluousness is really part of 10, being 10% happier. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, we, we got to do it with style. Um, uh, to see that the entrepreneurial impulse, the, 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 one of the cornerstones, if not the cornerstone of a, of a democratic capitalism can be wrapped up in love. Yeah. Such an interesting thing yeah. to think about as a contemplative conservative.
1: Yeah, you know this. This is look. If it, if you're not doing it for love, is now we're doing it. If it's not actually about other people, if it's not generative, it's it's not. If it's not good, it's not worth doing. I mean, one of the things that that uh, that conservatives in America and around the world, but the conservative movement in general has failed at utterly, is remembering the why of why you should be a conservative in the first place. I mean, the reason I became interested in in free enterprise. The reason I became interested in democratic capitalism is not because I, I, you know, took an economics class and I said, gee whiz, it turns out that socialism tends to create less of a consumer surplus. (laughs) I don't care. I I didn't care. The the reason is because I I had actually a pivotal experience when I was 19 years old, I was on a concert tour in India and I was on a plane that, that had an emergency landing in Madras, Chennai. And I spent like I didn't expect to. I spent days walking around the slum, and it had this big effect because I was, you know, a 19 year old kid, and it was 1983, and I saw poverty like I'd never seen before. I mean, starving kids, lepers, people dying in the street, and it, it, it was it was it was a time of sort of formative time for me. And I came back and I thought, you know, this is a time when people were seeing pictures in the National Geographic magazine of kids with flies on their face and distended bellies, and 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 the question is, why do we have so much, and other people have so little and I kind of went on a vision quest to find the answer to that, and what could be done and it just and, and I had complete openness look i don't have any economics background in my family i don't have any right wing ideology i don't nobody has ever been in business. My father was a professor, my mother was an artist. My grandfather was a professor. I mean, I come from this line of not capitalists <laughs> and and, and, and I found through what I thought was assiduous study and openness and, and a, I think a search for truth, that it was the free enterprise system as instantiated in globalization and free trade and property rights and the rule of law and this idea of entrepreneurship and f- human freedom that had been spreading around the world. When, as just as I had seen that kid in National Geographic magazine who was going to die – People all over the world for the first time had been able to see Dan Harris and Arthur Brooks and the way that we live. And they said, I want that freedom and I want that stuff. And they grabbed it. And and here's the thing, here's the pivotal piece of data. Two billion of my brothers and sisters have been pulled out of poverty since I was a kid. For the first time in human history, that is the humanitarian miracle. And I want the next two billion. And I'm dedicated to getting it. That doesn't mean that I have to be just like a, a warrior for unmitigated uh, sort of Ayn Randian capitalism. It means that I have to recognize that the free enterprise movement has, has done that. And that I, as a moral person am obligated to find a way through basic human morality and, and spreading it in a sustainable way and recognizing that there are market failures and that we need regulation and it's not perfect find the best way to share that with more people because they're my brothers and sisters. And it's the only system that's been able to help people by the billions.
0: Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network network.
3: So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? OK, maybe that's just me.
1: But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milky, And every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight.
4: Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling.
1: All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
0: I was trying to get you to plug your podcast and you you took us on this fascinating digression, but I'm going to get you back to, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to be your publicist. Yeah. Thank you. Let's talk about the, that will make me 10% happier. I hope so. At least. Yeah. Um, The, the first season you really honed in on something that I think my listeners are going to care about a lot, which is how do we talk to our fellow Americans and humans about things when we disagree deeply. And I'm just curious to, to hear you talk about what you've learned and what we, how we can, uh, aside from listening to your podcast, which I heartily recommend everybody do. Yeah. How can we operationalize some of the lessons that you've gleaned?
1: Well, the first thing to recognize what's making it hard for us to talk to each other. And the answer is not that we disagree. Disagreeing is great. Disagreeing is nothing more than competition in the world, in the world of ideas. You know, competition is great in economics and it, it's great in politics it's also great in the world of ideas. And that's called disagreement. Nothing wrong with disagreements. Countries based on disagreement. This is America. There's nothing wrong with even getting angry sometimes. I mean, you know, being married to a Spaniard, I've had like 10,000 arguments over the past <laughs> 30 years. I mean, it's just, it's it's, it's no problem with that. And, and my friend, John Gottman, who's a, a social psychologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, is the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. He He shows in his work that, That anger is not correlated with separation and divorce. What is? It's when you take anger and you mix something in on top of it, which is disgust, which is this idea that people are sort of, they're they're horrible. And and so disgust mixed with anger creates something. it's, uh, It's like putting ammonia in bleach. It creates something called contempt. Contempt is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. That's, the, that's how Arthur Schopenhauer, the 19th century philosopher, described it. And when you basically treat people with contempt, anger is hot. Contempt is cold. You get a permanent enemy. So the, to, to say, how can people talk to each other? How can they disagree? Which is what the podcast is all about. The first thing is to not do the one thing that makes it impossible for us to talk to each other, impossible to disagree with each other in a productive way. And that's by treating each other with contempt, to treat each other with mockery and eye rolling and smirking and snark and all the stuff that characterizes the current debates of the day. Uh, That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Really? I bet it isn't. I mean, the, the truth is somebody says something you disagree with. Well, then great. Bring it on. There's nothing wrong with having people disagree with each other. And when you can recognize that it's actually okay for people to disagree with each other, you can take an even more radical step, which is to say, I want people to disagree with me because I might not be completely right.
0: I want to test my ideas. And
1: if I'm wrong, I want to know first, not last. And so therefore, I don't want to silo myself. You know what else? This is crazy, crazy. This is beyond the pale. I don't even want to get 100% of what I want, but what I'm asking for. I want somebody who disagrees with me to get something too, (laughs) because I know in my life that it's better when everybody walks away happy. And that's the basis of a society where we can work with each other and where we can disagree with each other and we can fertilize each other's opinions and ideas and where we actually are less mediocre, where we're more excellent because we're working on each other. We're showing each other different angles on what just, just might be the truth
0: but contempt is a naturally occurring mental phenomenon so it it will happen it will come up in all of us and mm. there's no point beating yourself up for feeling contempt what is how can we recognize that contempt is arising but not be so carried away by it that we then express it and kill any potential for fruitful discussion
1: that's a beautiful question and it's a very buddhist question yes. i can tell that you're buddhist yes. and so you know that what i'm going to answer the answer is fake it the answer is fake it you know this is the key thing you know when you're when you're when you're sitting in meditation and especially when you're a beginner it's really hard it's brutal isn't it stays that as hard? fact <laughs> of course it stays hard <laughs> what do you do you 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 act you pretend you fake it you know you you don't beat yourself up because your your mind is you got the monkey mind you know you don't beat yourself up because you stopped counting your breaths you just bring it back and you pretend as if it was good all along that's what you do and the same thing by the way i mean it's when 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 john gottman the guy I referred to a minute ago when he talks to his couples and they say i just don't love my wife anymore what should i do he says pretend you love her pretend you love you your wife it. and and yeah no it, it's uh it, that's the reason that that's an expression is because it's actually true it's interesting there's a a, a body of research on on smiling there was a physiologist in the late 19th century named Duchenne who, who traveled the whole world in an anthropological study of the human smile to see whether it's culturally based or whether it's physiological, innate in the human musculature of the face. And he found out that, sure enough, there are 19 types of human smiles and only one is associated with true human happiness, the Duchenne smile. And you know how you see it is with the orbicularis oculi muscles around the eyes. So if you see somebody who's got crow's feet, that person has been smiling with true happiness. This is, this is Dan and Arthur's goal is to be 80 years old and have really super pronounced crow's feet because we've been smiling with true happiness a lot in our lives. Yeah. That's what you want. That's why you kind of laugh when you see somebody with really pronounced crow's feet because they, mm-hmm. that happiness is infectious. Okay. Why do I bring that up? Because when you simulate a Duchenne smile, there's a way to do it, by the way, which is to put a pencil in your mouth that's sticking out. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you do that and then force yourself to smile, it forces up the orbicularis oculi muscles, and literally your brain will perceive that you're happy. <laughs> and, and you will be happier because you've fooled your brain into it. That's faking it till you make it, man. That is the scientific basis of what, the, what Buddhist teaching has been for thousands of years. And it is the same way that we're supposed to live when it comes to contempt and brotherhood and solidarity. You don't feel it, it doesn't matter. Suck it up.
0: So what I glean from your podcast was if you're sitting, or one of the many things I've gleaned thus far, and I'm only halfway through, is if you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and your voluble uncle says something that you find obnoxious about yeah. the state of American politics right now, um, that the move, even though you may feel contempt, is to say, tell me more about why you believe that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's exactly the same. Before The, the, the way to think about it is you want you to fake love say, what would I do or how would I want somebody to be behaving toward me? I mean, it's nothing more. The, the best way to fake goodness is the golden rule. Mm. And so to say, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, I'd want them to probe a little bit deeper rather than attacking me. I'd want them to say, huh, you know, Arthur Brooks just said something I disagree with. Um, I wonder what he meant. I wonder what he meant. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I misunderstood or maybe there's an angle I could get on something or or, or maybe he's just completely wrong. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. That's but I want, when people really disagree with me, I want them to ask me to tell them more. And so that's the same thing that I do. So that's the key thing is to ask yourself, look, when, when somebody is is driving you nuts, say, if if you were driving that person nuts, how would you want them to act toward you? And then, and then turning the tables. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is an important thing, this has been really, really helpful for me in my practice, is to see the contempt that other people treat you with as an opportunity. Dalai Lama taught me this one. It's really great because I asked him one time. We were making this documentary film that's coming out next spring uh, in the spring of 2019. About what? It, it's it's about uh, how people pull themselves out of poverty. Mm. You know, it's people how people build their lives. It's called The Pursuit. Mm. It's the pursuit, basically, of prosperity, but in the broad sense of human prosperity. We, we're all over the world. We're in a slum in India, and we're in a little town in, in Kentucky, and, and, and we're in a homeless shelter in New York City. It's, it's a great experience. Beautiful, actually. And uh, I was with the Dalai Lama for the last scene because it basically says, you know, capitalism, you hear it's terrible for poor people. It's not going to great for poor people. It's dangerous for rich people because it can lead to materialism and greed. So how do you fight that? We're talking about this with the Dalai Lama. In between takes, when we were having this conference that we were filming, I said, I'm writing this article and I'm thinking about this thing and it's contempt. What should I do when I face contempt? Huh. And he said, express warm heartedness because contempt is an opportunity to change a heart. And what he meant with my heart, mm-hmm. so this is the, see, this is the thing. Everybody listening to us should say, I want to, you want to be 10% happier. Look for contempt. Look for people treating you with contempt because you have this opportunity to treat that contempt with warm heartedness. And so doing change your heart. See, when you react with contempt, it gives you nothing more than scratching an itch which is inherently unsatisfying because you're going to be hungry again. It's going to itch more. It's going to bleed. It's going to... Uh, I could torture the metaphor, but you get the idea.
0: I mean, you make the point on the podcast that expressing contempt is bad for the expressor yeah, of yeah. the contempt. You'll be
1: less happy. You'll be more depressed. You'll even look uglier. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of research on this. There's a very, very good social psychology that actually finds that when people are expressing contempt, they're, they're perceived to be less physically attractive huh. than other people. It's, there's just There's nothing good about this. But here's the here's the good part if you can if you can get the discipline of saying i have just been treated with contempt that is my opportunity to become happier and more beautiful <laughs> you'll do it and, and you'll be grateful for it thank you thank you God for giving me this opportunity to and, and by the way you might change a second heart too now where is the most efficacious way to to in to induce this experiment the answer of is a hundred times out of a hundred these days, social media. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the Thanksgiving mm-hmm. table with your obnoxious uncle. It's to go on Twitter for one second <laughs> and to say anything.
0: You've called Twitter a contempt machine.
1: It, 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 in, in, in the worst of cases is a contempt machine. And a, and a lot of the time it is the worst of cases. Really problematic. It's, it's a great thing for expressing ideas. I mean, we're recording this the day after labor day and, uh, you know, on Labor Day I put out a ten part meditation on the dignity of work. And it was so satisfying because it got a good reaction. It got, you know, people saying, Yeah, this is, you know, the dignity of work, people feeling the dignity that it comes from being needed is something that we all should do. And so it can be a real force for good, but often it isn't. Say anything that's even remotely political, that where you express your point of view, or oh, for that matter, just say something you like about a movie and people will, you know, they'll tell you 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 hate children and and eat puppies or something and it's just the worst, right? How are you going to react? I mean, how are you going to react? You're going to say, "Oh yeah, no, you you hate kids worse." You're you can actually answer contempt on social media with warm-heartedness and and see how it makes you feel. Um it'll make you less interesting to people who like to gossip and who are in the contempt mill but getting out of that getting off of that hamster wheel is something I very much I very much recommend to people who are in the practice of trying to become some non-trivial percentage happier.
0: Have you heard of a group called Better Angels? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: I'll leave it to you to describe who they are, but I'd be curious to see once you do that. Um whether you agree I don't with know they're where they're
1: located. They here, they're here new, or they're all over the place, actually. Better Angels is all over the yeah, place. Yeah, so no.
0: I actually did a story on them for Nightline. Yeah. And they're, so I'll answer it. I'll yeah. do the first part. They, they are, uh, I think they're decentralized. Their yeah. founders are all over the place. Yeah. Assiduously equal uh, in terms of representation on their board and everything else in terms of reds and blues. So their board is 50% yeah. red, 50% blue. Uh, Founded by one blue, one red, and their goal is to "quote unquote" depolarize America. (laughs) They're named after the famous uh, Abraham Lincoln appeal to the better angels of our nature, and um, they hold these little sort of encounter sessions all over the country between reds and blues. And their 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 approach was designed, fittingly, by a marriage counselor. Very interesting guy. Based out of uh, Minneapolis, if I recall. Right. And he actually says that dealing with people who disagree politically is harder than dealing with couples on the brink of divorce because at least couples who are fighting have some prior commitment to one another. Yeah. Or they have kids in common or yes, something. Yes. Right? There's a reason, there's yeah. some stake.
1: Right. Now, by the way, people who are politically polarized do have something in common if they live in the same neighborhood. And their yes. kids are goofing around yes. together. And part yes. of the reason it's become so hard is because we have come apart. In the words of Charles Murray or or a, a Bob Putnam at Harvard, I mean, there are a lot of people who have talked about the fact that we're an utterly geographically polarized nation,
0: self sorted,
1: totally. And so, if you live in you know the Upper West Side in Manhattan or or Palo Alto or someplace, you're very unlikely to have a a, a really close friend who's a Republican. You don't
0: know anybody. You can you can be in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and not ever encounter somebody who voted for trump
1: exactly right exactly right and not just didn't vote for trump anybody who is sympathetic to traditionally conservative policy so even the stuff that i the relatively mild things that i say are anathema to a lot of people who just never mix because they and you tend to be by the way pushed toward your polar extreme when you're only around people like you and as such you can't see the common humanity with people And, and again these are just political opinions and yet they seem like the biggest gulfs, and that's why these marriage counselors like John Gottman and and why the founder of Better Angels has found that this is such a hard bridge to make in America
0: today. It is because uh, – and I've heard you talk about this before. See, so this this will not be new information to you, but we are self-sorting geographically and then also in our terms of our media – so yeah. you you we live in these echo chambers, both physical and um, virtual, right? Uh, and so you're just ne- we're never challenged. Many of us are never challenged, right. and we're not looking for a challenge, which I think we ought to be. Sure. But the the one of the principal rules of Better Angels, when I'd be interested to hear your view, is never try to change somebody's mind, right? Really all you're trying to achieve, and this is their term which I really like, is accurate disagreement.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you notice that they don't say less disagreement either. One no. of the big mistakes that we make is thinking that the the answer to bad disagreement is less disagreement. That's exactly wrong. Again, competition's great. What we need is better disagreement. And better disagreement means that just because we're competing with each other doesn't mean or just because we're disagreeing with each other doesn't mean we have to hate each other and, so, and the, the, the thing to keep in mind uh on disagreement is the metaphor to keep in mind is sports so the yankees don't want to blow up the red sox bus on the way to the game because that's not competition that's shutting competition down and we're rhetorically doing something like that when we try to make somebody anathema who disagrees with us or we're, we're siloing our 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 media we're only talking to people who agree with us and we and we 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 vilify or we demonize people who disagree with us. What we're doing is we're blowing up the other team's bus. And that's what Better Angels is trying to solve. They're trying to get the teams together and to disagree fairly with, you know, be good sports and shake hands. And, you know, the one thing that the Yankees and and Red Sox agree on is that baseball (laughs) is (laughs) awesome. And they agree on that a lot more than they disagree about, you know, whether that was in the strike zone. And that's really important. I mean, it's like, you know, if the, if, the, if the Red Sox pitcher, they're in Boston, Fenway, and the Red Sox pitcher throws it up in the stands and the, and the umpire says, actually, I'm going to call that a strike because uh, we're in Boston. The Boston fans will say, you're a moron. That's wrong.
0: They actually want rules. I think I've heard you talk about the narcissism of small differences. Yeah. That, yeah. W- that we, we agree on so much, but we're just so focused on the places where we disagree.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And, and so but, – but remembering that the, the key things that we agree on, the moral consensus – around which that we're basing our disagreements, make our disagreements that much richer and that much more important. And that's what they raise the stakes for disagreeing better and competing better.
0: Do you? How much optimism do you have that we as a country can survive this current spasm of toxic tribalism?
1: So optimism is like, you know, shoveling through the barn and saying, I know there must be a pony in here someplace, <laughs> right? You know, um, I am hopeful. Why? Because hope means something can be done, and that Dan and Arthur can be part of the way that it gets done. That we have agency in it. Optimism thinks it's it's going to be fine. I don't know if it's going to be fine. I don't know if it's going to be fine. I mean, I I, I actually do think that America is going to be okay. Um, but I'm more hopeful than anything else because I think that we have the solution. I think that most Americans, and again, by my empirical reading, of the data. A big majority of Americans actually want things to be better, and they're waiting for the aspirational leadership that will make it so. And I strongly suspect in the coming years, if we push this, if we work together, if we're part of the agents for the change that we want to see, if, we, if we're if we assiduous about refusing to hate our neighbors, <laughs> that, that that leadership really will emerge. Because each one of us ultimately is a leader. Each one of us is a leader in our families, in our communities, and in and, and, and democracy like the United States – the political leadership and what we see in media, these are demand-driven phenomena. You know, what, what we really want will filter up. And, and so we can make it so – I'm very hopeful, actually, about the future. I think that we're the, – the, the lack of rigidity in political ideology is creating all sorts of discomfort and things that I really, really dislike right now. But it also creates an opportunity for us to say it's a new day, man. I was talking to a dear friend uh, who's sort of center-left like I'm center-right. We were remarking the other day. If you'd asked me uh, five years ago, what do I have in common with this guy ideological? I'd say, how much? If you asked me today, I'd say, all the important stuff. <laughs> and that's a new day.
0: Uh, one more question on on this. In terms of giving advice to people who are interested in being good citizens, being yeah. part of the solution. One advice that I'm tempted to give, but our mutual friend Ezra uh, if I recall, when I in- had him on the podcast, he disagreed with me, but I still think it's the right advice, aside from avoid contempt, uh, which is, I think wonderful advice, is to try to get out of your own ideological ghetto yeah. and to try to consume some media that will challenge you. Uh, so I would say media diet diversification is really important. Now, Ezra pointed out that a lot of people – who, th- this advice is given to people that people it doesn't work and i don't know maybe he's right about that but it feels important to me uh uh there's there's a great some, some, somebody put on twitter if you're not if you're only following people you agree with you're doing it wrong yeah and i think it's important to follow people you disagree with to listen to podcasts of people that you disagree with and to do it on a consistent basis so your ideas are challenged right am i am i you agree with that or disagree?
1: well the the, the what
0: ezra's
1: uh talking about is the studies that show that people when they're uh, when they're simply exposed to a, a non-curated opposing points of view they have an extremely strong averse reaction to adverse reaction to it and it's sort of an aversion therapy that happens. And the result is they built up even stronger antibodies mm-hmm. to it. So that and, and you can imagine that. I mean, if you're if you're a really hardcore progressive and, and you just flip on Fox News, it's gonna bum you out even more. You're gonna say, It's true, all these terrible things I've been thinking about, because I listen I, you know, watch the 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 you know eight PM, nine PM, ten P.M. lineup and it's like I can't believe what these guys are saying. It's just as bad as I thought. Or if you're, you're really, really strong conservative and you just flip on, you know, five minutes of morning edition on National Public Radio or something in the morning and you're just like, I can't believe what those guys are talking about. I can't, it's it's everything I thought and more and or MSNBC or something like that. Um, so there's a, it's, I think that it's important not just to get outside your silos. I think that it's more important to have relationships that help curate your experience outside your silos. You need to make friends who disagree with you. You need to basically talk to find people that you trust who say, Explain this to me. Tell me what you're listening to and tell me what you hear. So one of the things I recommend Given
0: that we live in self sorted silos, how do we make those friends? You know, everybody's got there's somebody. Everybody's got something.
1: For one thing, it's important that one of the great advances of the past fifty years in American society is this understanding that diversity is king. I mean, diversity has just improved our experiences so much where we live and we work in environments where men and women work together, people of different races work together, where people who who speak different languages work together. I mean, it's like diversity is, I mean, I I live in a multiracial, multiethnic home and it's, and it's it's a great source of joy and I'm smarter and better for it. And that's what people didn't realize that. I mean, that was, weird way of thinking until relatively recently. So we get that. But one of the things that we're trying to resist is ideological diversity. So step one is demanding that we work in places that have ideological diversity. Workplaces are really important to us. And so I know that's super important to – you and media. I mean you're simply not. And ABC News is just not going to have something where everybody is a hardcore progressive. It's just not going to happen because that would be a bad product. But universities need to do this. Universities need to do a much better job of getting conservatives on faculty. And and some are. I mean, I'm going to Harvard and that's great. Uh, uh, I, I, I can't wait. But other universities need to do a better job too because diversity matters, ideological diversity as well. And people need to figure out that diversity matters to them socially. It's not like you you literally can't find anybody who disagrees with you. You're just not trying hard it's, enough.
0: It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It,
1: and, and that's that's the point. Go out and do it. <laughs> and so make a friend. Make more friends and say – I want you to help me understand. It's is so funny because when you have this experience, it's so unbelievably enriching. Nobody actually gets a, you know, has a friend who disagrees with them politically and says, you know, I, I you know, I had this friend, he's a great guy and all that, but it, it was not an enriching experience for me because the guy voted for Trump. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't happen that way. On the contrary, they'll say something like, he's such a great guy. He voted for Trump, but he's such a great guy. You know, that's what they'll, they'll kind of make excuses for it, which is to say that it's a really enriching experience. So, Take, make the effort to do it because life gets better if you anybody's listening to us believes that diversity is isn't just an inherently good thing for the human spirit then then take that to its asymptote take it to the max and do what's the hardest for people in America today which is people who authentically think differently than we do if you're super religious like me be buddies with an atheist and say tell me when you see this thing what do you hear on my side and I go to your side and say that thing that I hear that's really bumming me out. What do you hear? And it'll be like, man, it's like it's it's like somebody taking you through his home neighborhood. It's <laughs> and it's it's like oh, I never saw that before, or you know, I, I went, I hired a guy one time to take me through the National Palace Museum in Taiwan, and he was a, it was a, it was an art historian, a Chinese art historian. And you know I'd been through it before, and it's like, wow, that's a block of jade, and it's really beautiful, and it's from the Qing dynasty, and it's great. And then he would take me through, and he would say what the person was thinking and what was going on. It was a completely different – so let somebody curate that for you, and it'll open up a whole new world. That is a true
0: secret to happiness. You're writing – one of your many projects is you're writing about the second half of life. Yeah. I'm firmly in the second half of my life, I think least by the... Maybe. you're 40, 47? 40, seven. Seven? Yes.
1: Eh, I don't know. You might not be in the second. I wouldn't... I wouldn't by the I actuarial charts. Yeah, you yeah think the actuarial it? charts are in your favor. <laughs> I really? think I'm going really to live north yeah. of 100? You could. You could. I mean, it's like, you should see... I mean, that thing is... Anyway, I, I, I take your point. You might be at the border.
0: So I'm, nonetheless, highly invested in whatever you're right. learning. I want right. to know what you're learning. And one of the things you said to me in the elevator up here is that, Ambitious people can't answer the question, what what are they What are they trying to do? Yeah. And somehow that's related to the second half of life, yeah, so I'll, it I'll leave is. it
1: to you. So happiness generally comes not from attaining the object of your heart's desire, not getting it, not getting there, but it's the gradient in getting there. It's becoming better, becoming more successful on your own terms. And and if you're doing it wrong, it's you're denominating your success in money, power, and pleasure, and fame. Right. And if you're doing it right, it's in glorifying God and serving your fellow man. I mean, that's that's really when if that's the current you got to get the right currency. But to be sure, it's when you see that accumulation, when you see that success happening, that turns out to be the real driver of happiness. The problem is, if you're a very successful person, if you're Dan Harris, you got a great career. Right. The problem is there's the physics of success, which is that what goes up must come down. It Just is. And just as the gradient gave you unbelievable satisfaction, the, the downside of that gives you great frustration. So there's this body of work by these two social psychologists at UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, a couple. And they're doing work on the burden of high achievement. What they find is that the people who are most frustrated later in life, the people who, are, who tend to be the most melancholy, who tend to feel most like failures, they tend to be the high achievers. Why is that? Because they've actually seen the downward slope. If you never do anything, man, there's no downward slope. <laughs> and so you don't feel like anything ever came down, but coming down, it just, it just, it's just terrible. It's horrible for people. The question is, what do you do? What are the strategies for that? Because, you know, so it's like, it's like, sorry, even if you didn't want to do that, Dan Harris is in trouble because you got a big career, a well-known guy. I mean, it's like everybody in college, and they want to be like you. They want to be journalists. I mean, it's a tough profession. They want to have what you have. You got it, and you enjoyed it all the way up. But at some point, you're not going to have it. How do you avoid becoming 10% less happy?
0: <laughs> you tell me, please. Yeah,
1: okay. There's, stra- there's good strategies and bad strategies. Here's the bad strategy. Raging against the decline. So, I mean... I've tried that. Dylan, yeah, yeah, man. Dylan Thomas is, you know, rage, rage against the dying of the light. That was my favorite poem when I was in high school because I was, you know, wearing a lot of black. And, 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 <laughs> and, and I thought he was so cool because he drank himself to death at 39. I mean, what could be cooler than that, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's a terrible strategy. He wrote that for his father when his father was dying rage against the dying of the light that was his advice to his own father's terrible advice because you can't <laughs> the avo- light's gonna die you, can't, no you what. can't avoid it so the only answer is to embrace it mm-hmm. strategy number one is that the curve that you're on that where you're in decline in the second half of your second second part of your professional life is only one curve That's generally related to what psychologists call fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is your cognitive speed, your processing capacity, your problem-solving ability. It's your sheer cognitive horsepower. And it tends to decline in late 30s, 40s, 50s, really in decline, right? That's not your only curve because you have a second intelligence curve, which is called crystallized intelligence, which is based on your stock of wisdom it's actually a virtue. Nobody ever says the virtue of brains. They always talk about the virtue of wisdom, however. So crystallized intelligence is a stock. It's what you know and how you're able to use it. And that increases through your 40s and 50s and 60s, and it stays high if all goes well until you die. So what does that mean? That means you need to jump from activities that favor your fluid intelligence. And in your business and the business of a lot of people who are listening to us, is based on high fluid intelligence. <laughs> it's exploiting their high fluid intelligence. You need to jump from the fluid intelligence curve to the crystallized intelligence curve. So, how do you do it? Fluid intelligence is all about innovation, right? It's all about being an innovator with your life and in your career and, and doing something better and different than other people do. Crystallized intelligence is all about instruction. So, what you need to do is you need to go from being an innovator to being a teacher. Mm. And there are cases all throughout history of this. One of the cases I love the most is my favorite composer is Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach was uh, maybe the greatest composer who ever lived. But what people don't know about Bach, I mean, he was the master of the High Baroque, which was the thing in the in the late eighteenth uh, in the late seventeenth century when Bach was coming into his own. He was born in in sixteen eighty five, and by the by the early seventeen hundreds, the High Baroque was what everybody was listening to, and he was the innovator. He was the master. But here is crazy thing that happened. His son, Johann Christian Bach changed musical styles and classic, the classical period of classical music took over and it was a different style. And Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, the father couldn't do it. His son was, was ringing in this new style and leaving his father behind. And his father was, it's like the equivalent of writing disco or something. It was like, nobody wanted to listen to it anymore. So what did he do? He could have (laughs) raged against the dying of the light. He could have become depressed he could have like, I'm a failure and quit. No, 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 no. He actually dedicated the rest of his life to recording in text form the highest that it had ever been thought and written in the high baroque for posterity. He became a true teacher. He wrote a work called the Kunster der Fugo, which is the art of fugue, which he said, somebody's going to look at this at some point. They're going to say, ah, oh, the high baroque. He believed in that. He, he put his whole heart into it and he taught it to his children and he taught it to the... Uh, he did the students of the Thomaskirche in, in, in Leipzig where he was the cantor, where he was the teacher. And and hundred years after he died, Felix Mendelssohn, the, the the German composer, dusted off the art of fugue and said to his friends, dudes, you've got to hear this. <laughs> this is and, and the high baroque became the thing again and, and Johann Sebastian Bach became the rock star composer that we still know today. I, I don't he f- was right. He was and he was happy when he died because he went from fluid to crystallized intelligence.
0: I don't feel ready to switch.
1: You're not ready to switch yet. Here's the point. You have to actually build, a, your crystallized intelligence is naturally building. There will be a point in which you're going to have an opportunity. When you feel like you're raging against the dying of the light, when you feel like it's not happening, when it's not making it for you anymore, that's your dead giveaway mm. that you need to be thinking. So so, so when you think about it, like you're 47 years old and you're when you're 57 years old, maybe you should be teaching in a school of journalism. Maybe you should go to academia or, or, or at very least, you should be thinking about how, how people can share the fruits of your knowledge, how you can pass it on. Because this is the key thing. What you find is that great, in any profession, I'm thinking lawyers, for example, great lawyers, they cut their teeth by being just the hot shots. They, they cruise through these cases. They can figure stuff out. They know how to use case law better than anybody else. They're being taught by older lawyers who can't do what they do but who used to be able to do what mm. they do. The managing partner of a great law firm is basically the master teacher. He's the, the Himalayan master. He's the guru in the cave, <laughs> right? And, and what has he done? He's actually he, – he's managed to move from the fluid intelligence that made him do a star to the crystallized intelligence that made him the grand eminence of his law firm. So why did you say that ambitious people don't know what it is they want? Ambitious people often think that they will be finally happy when they get to the peak, not understanding that what they want is to go up the mountain.
0: So that brings to mind something I heard the writer Sean Acor say recently. Do you know Sean? No, I don't. S-H-A-W-N, first name A-C-H-O-R. He wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. Mm, He's mm, uh, a trained positive psychologist at Harvard. Right. Uh, And he – I don't think this is his formulation – but he talks about it a lot. He says, Happiness is the joy we feel moving toward our potential. Yeah. And when I heard him say that, it meant exactly nothing to me. Mm. And over time, in the last couple of weeks since I heard him say this, I've been ruminating on it. And uh, it's starting to make a little bit more sense in ways that I'm not sure I can articulate. But it's interesting that inherent in that definition is that you never get there. Yeah. It's always about the pleasure of moving toward the potential, not arriving and then resting on your laurels indefinitely.
1: We are a species oriented toward progress. Progress is incredibly satisfying. It just is. But you
0: can't fall for the fallacy that you're ever going to you, – you have to have progress without falling into the illusion that there's an end point. Yeah,
1: well, there. And the key thing is you have to – you you work with intention but without attachment. To the object of the intention, and again, you're you're the Buddhist. I mean, you understand that. Not a master. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> who is a master? There are masters, you and, know, and you know. And, one. and when you achieve that, you'll finally be happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the so the point is that we have to go in a particular direction; otherwise, we would be going in circles. We would be directionless. It's a it's a detachment from the object of the the, the, the actual achievement per se understanding that the progress toward that is what's giving us the in- innate satisfaction. I mean that that's why that's what we're, we're wired to understand. That's what we're wired to in, in a way there's this western understanding of the human psyche which is always wanting to be better. It's an american thing in its way that you know the nation of strivers with a little bit of buddhism which is the cherry on top which is to say that when you actually get there that's not the point. It's getting there that is actually the point. The striving per se actually gives you the satisfaction. And actually, that's what moves society forward. I mean, this is what we want. I mean, we want to every kid to get a great education, every kid to have proper ambition, everybody to have. When you say, I want every kid to be able to achieve his dreams, what you're not talking about is, is articulate your dreams and get there. Because you know what? We're so rich. You tell me what your dreams are. In a lot of cases, I can just buy it for you. <laughs> But with your kid, I mean, your kid is still in diapers, but, you know, my kids are grown up and, you know, I I don't want to give them what they've got. I mean, my kids are, man, they are earning their success. Mm -hmm. And that is the most satisfying thing to watch is watching them earning their success, getting better at what they do. And I want that for me, too. I want that for you, too, Dan.
0: That will bring you happiness. I, I, I totally agree. It makes sense. But I keep falling into this. I mean the Buddha had a term for this it's called suffering. Yeah. I keep falling into the trap of never enjoying the process and just you know figuring that as soon as I get this book done this whatever done then I'll be in the elysian you know, yeah, yeah. fields or whatever. Yeah, there's
1: interesting Robert Wright, a uh, social psychologist, he wrote the book uh, why Buddhism is true for, and former guest on the it, show. It's a it's a wonderful book. It, it is. It's, a, it's wonderful. a wonderful book. It's yes. a wonderful book. And he talks about the fact that that uh, that evolutionary psychology wires us to think that things are going to – the thing, the achievement per se is going to gra- give us greater happiness than it will and that the happiness will be longer lasting than it is. Why? Because we, we should be for – for the human race to propagate itself and for us to make human progress, we, we have evolved to be creatures that, that live under that illusion. Right, We live under that illusion. Otherwise, we wouldn't do anything, right? Okay, so but we, we need to – you, you and I as sentient beings uh, who are supposed to be more evolved than simply acting according to every impulse like a snail or something, we should be able to recognize that illusion and, and so be free. So what you're talking about when you're talking about the, the first noble truth of, of Buddhism is that life is suffering and actually it's better translated to life is dissatisfaction because the word in Sanskrit you well know dukkha dukkha is, means, you know, dissatisfaction. What it basically means is you, you're going to get that and you finally get that and it's like, oh, it's not that great. Right? That, why we
0: have rock stars with drug problems.
1: Yeah, that's, that's why we have all of us with tons of problems. Yes. I mean, that is the essence of why we self medicate in any particular way, whether it's working too much or whether it's some sort of a bad habit or it's even the bad habit of ill humor all the time, which is kind of like a drug problem in its way. It's because of dukkha. It's because of dissatisfaction that comes from that. And to free ourselves from that is to understand that that it's not that the that the achievement per se is not meritorious. It's the attachment to that achievement is the source of our discouragement. It's the source of our frustration per se. And finally being able to let go of that while still being while still enjoying the trajectory and, and relishing the progress. This is one of the great secrets. Weirdly, we all know this for our kids. We all understand this for our kids. It's like, it's like he is your your son walking.
0: Yeah, he's three. He's he's oh, he's three. He's
1: walking. Okay, he's just like not toilet trained yet, right? Because it's a boy, and it'll be like till he's nine. Yes, yeah, yeah. So when he takes his first steps, you are like, yeah. it's not like because you think he's going to be in the olympics (laughs) he's like the worst walker ever he's completely uncoordinated terrible he's terrible i mean he's completely terrible that's not the point (laughs) you're enjoying the progress per se and he's enjoying the progress per se he's cracking up he's digging it right we understand that for other people and we somehow forget that for ourselves and if we can get that through our heads then we have this and, and again it takes years and years and years of practice and progress you're look. you're a meditator You've studied with the masters. I have a little bit too, and we're still working on that. That's the that's the project for our lives. What a
0: pleasure it's been to sit and talk to you. Thank you, Dan. I love being with you, and
1: thank you for having
0: me on this terrific show. I knew I was going to have a good time doing this. Me uh, too. <laughs> thank you very much. Great job. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thanks. As I said, I really love this conversation. I hope you did too. Just a reminder, go check out his podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show, and uh, check out his new book, Love Your Enemies. Arthur Brooks, really glad we had that conversation. I suspect uh, more to come from him. So let's get to your voicemails. Here's number one.
2: Hello, Dan Harris. This is Amy in Denton, Texas, a super cool town that you should visit someday. I found meditation through your book 10% Happier after hearing you and Sam Harris on the Joe Rogan podcast in April of seventeen. So I'm very new to the practice, and I really want to thank you for speaking and teaching about meditation like you do, because I was a super skeptic like you, and swear words help. On a side note, my 13-year-old son read your book, and half the time I listened to the audio version, and he loved it too, and again, I think the swear words really helped. Uh, Finding meditation and yoga and minimalism in the last year and a half have really brought some positive changes to my life, and have thankfully caused me to take a hard left in the way I spend my time, how I see the world, raise my kids who are 13 and 10, and how I exist. My question is, how do you work still in such a cutthroat profession after a while on your journey of enlightenment? I know you guys say one is enlightened or not, but I think it's a journey for me, you know, on a spectrum upon which one grows and progresses. If you met me five years ago, I wasn't even on the spectrum. I do gravitate towards living in black and white, so it's hard for me to work in such a competitive field that I do of medical sales and feel good about what I'm doing. We in the business call it the golden handcuffs. I try to find a deeper meaning and tell myself I'm helping people when most of the time I feel like I'm just feeding the beast. I thought maybe it was like that for you or that you know what I mean, at least, you know? How do you do it? Thanks, Dan. Hope to hear your thoughts.
0: That was a great voicemail. I really appreciate it. Now I want to go to your part of Texas. I do love Texas. Um, so I just re- want to react to two things in there. First, the swear words. Um, I'm glad your 13-year-old son liked it. Um, some, Not everybody likes it. So good to he- get some positive feedback on that because I occasionally get negative feedback. And I totally agree with you about the spectrum of enlightenment. Look, I- I've been pretty clear about my stance on enlightenment. I'm I'm agnostic. And but even if even if you're a hardcore Buddhist practitioner, it, it's viewed as a spectrum. There are stages along the path. So you're spot on there, and I think you know I, I certainly unabashedly and con, and continually subscribe to the ten percent view with the caveat that ten percent is a bit of a joke, but that marginal improvement happens over time. And uh, so I'm really psyched for you that the last couple of years since you said 2017, that you've been checking this stuff out and that it's making a difference. I'm really happy to hear that. As to your question, so I'll talk about my personal view about my own career, et cetera, et cetera, in a second. Because I I think, to my mind, there are two things here. There's, There's waking up to the fact that you might not feel good about what your profession is. And then there's having a different view toward... How you're going to show up in the work? I'm hope hopefully that's clear. But let me say a few more words, and hopefully these words will be clarifying. So, if you're through the process of meditation and maturation and cogitation, waking up to the fact that you you are in an industry that you just don't feel good about, well, I think first of all that's a, a that's a positive thing that you're waking up to that. I, I would not urge you to make any sudden moves that would put your family in financial uh, jeopardy. But I, th- I think it's a positive thing to start reflecting on and over time, you might see other opportunities in other directions in which you can move responsibly. So I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I just want to stress um, if you're if you're feeling like you've got golden handcuffs and and you're constrained – truly constrained, I'd, I personally, this is just my opinion here, I would not counsel you to just do something reckless to leave a, a career that could somehow um, leave your family in dire straits financially. But the process of thinking deeply about what else you might do, I think, in my experience, is really constructive. So that's just one person's view. As it pertains to me, so yeah, TV news is a very competitive field. I, however, don't feel that I don't have doubts about the importance of what we do, especially now. I really feel that TV news, the news in general, is an incredibly important endeavor. So my doubts have never been about about this field of endeavor, about this profession. Really, it's more been about my own attitude within it. And uh, so it was much more of a personal critique and, and how, yeah, it's, uh, let me edit that slightly just to say, there are things about the culture, specifically the way the culture at ABC News was when I arrived 19 years ago, that also put my innate uh, sort of cutthroat, hyper-competitive, super anxious, uh, my in- those innate capacities uh, of mine um, on steroids. But happily, though, the culture at ABC News has changed dramatically, and I think probably for a variety of reasons, I, too, have changed, in part because I'm keeping up with a culture that I think is vastly healthier than it used to be and because I've got this thing in my life uh, called meditation, which has been really useful, not to mention all you know, m- having married well uh, and getting older and wiser, I hope. So for me, I, I still am really excited about – when I take the escalator into ABC News every day, I still have some of that excitement – Much of the excitement that I had as a 28-year-old kid walking in this building for the first time 19 years ago, almost exactly 19 years ago. But my attitude about how to exist within this environment, that has definitely changed. I find myself getting caught up much less frequently in feelings of sort of being competitive with my colleagues or people from other networks, feeling jealous, feeling schadenfreude. I mean some of that definitely still happens I'm not a I'm not a perfected being or anything like that but I waste a lot less time on that and spend a lot more time on enjoying the substance of the work and in recent years I've really thanks to just good management here and uh been able to focus on things that I really do enjoy in particular I love doing weekend good morning america because it's really fun and I love doing big substantive stories for Nightline. And that's really my mandate here is to go out and find stories, big investigations. I've been doing a lot of stuff on the uh, violence and drug trade in Mexico and in recent years. So that, That's been really interesting for me. So that kind of work is really exciting. And I think focusing on that as opposed to looking around all the time at what somebody else is getting has vastly improved my inner life. Long answer, but I, I really liked your question, so I said a lot. Um, let's go to the second caller.
3: Hi, Dan. This is Ryan from Los Angeles. I had a question about achievement in meditation. As a very achievement-oriented person, uh, I noticed some of the apps and tools that kind of exist out there will give you run streaks and kind of these shiny icons and notifications to tell you how you know how much you, how many minutes you've done and how many days in a row and all that, and I see a lot of irony in this because the mindfulness has kind of taught me to be get not so hung up on my achievements and just enjoy things for what they are and not worry so much about this thing I'm gonna get at the end, and that you know each thing doesn't make you feel any different. you should just be more in the moment so but it is nice to have a carrot to run after and kind of something to be held accountable to. So even though, you know, we should just notice the inherent benefit in that we get from actually just meditating, not getting those achievements. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that at you and see what you thought, because I find myself missing a day or two and then I want to keep the streak going and then I get bummed out if I miss a day and then I kind of will miss a few days because I'm so bummed out that I missed a day. Anyway, uh, that's kind of my question and my thoughts. On that, thanks for your books and for bringing uh, meditation kind of to the mainstream and demystifying it. Really appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Another great question. Okay, so uh, let me approach this from two levels. The first level is um, I'm speaking now as mindfulness entrepreneur, I guess, Uh, somebody who is involved in operating one of these meditation apps. So I I have mixed feelings about streaks and giving people shiny icons, et cetera, for keeping up their meditation practice. But overall, I think it's good to provide it for those who like it because, and I've talked about this many times, so I won't say too much on it now, but behavior change and habit formation are incredibly difficult. And at the end of the day, I think if we can get people to have... Uh, an abiding meditation practice, if if getting them t- to establish uh, this practice involves providing some dopamine hits in the form of streaks or um, little digital rewards on your phone, um, I, I am not entirely against that. I think I can see the case for it, but I do think it needs to be done thoughtfully, and I, I know this is a discussion we have not infrequently Inside uh, the confines of our company on this issue, let me approach it now from another angle, which is as an individual, because I think that's really what you care about more. Look, I-, I think it is an individual choice. I am somebody who I use, uh, I track a lot of things like my calories, and I, I, I didn't. I only started doing the calorie tracking recently when I ter- switched over to being a vegan and got made myself sick at first and so I started working with a nutritionist to encourage me to track my calories and it has made a difference in terms of keeping myself healthy while also staying away from things I don't I don't really want to eat so I know what it's I that I can get a little crazy about tracking and uh, looking for streaks and rewards and whatever sort of dopamine hit uh, that you may get from these various apps that track various parts of our behavior etc cetera, etc cetera. So I think it's something that uh that you should you should play with and if you notice yourself getting crazy, then re examine. And it sounds to me like there's a little bit of mental mishigas creeping in for you here where you get discouraged because you let the streak go and then you, you know, say screw it i'm not going to meditate for a couple of days and so it's creating a whole sort of inner conversation that may or may not be helpful so in that case you might want to experiment with of you know not tracking anymore and just uh reverting to what you described about you know the meditation for the sake of the meditation and if you find that that's introducing a whole level of uh if that's making your practice slack in some way, if you're if you're slacking off as a consequence, then maybe dip your toes back into the streak and and see if you can um, uh, manage it more successfully. But you're just going to have to play. It's an individual thing. I know from our users, some people like this stuff. Some people don't. Some people are like you and me who are on the fence, but aware that it can make us crazy. And I I just think it's, it's a process of experimentation. And it is. It just goes back to what I said before about the fact that we are not wired for success when it comes to the setting up of healthy habits, and so we've got to play with lots of ways to get us there. Hopefully, that's helpful, Ryan. I really appreciate the question. I'm sorry I don't have some sort of pound the table, dogmatic answer for you on this, but I, I think it's uh, more complex than that. All right, guys, thank you for listening to the Ten Percent Happier podcast. I'm not saying that in a perfunctory way. I am, and our team. He is incredibly grateful to all of you who listen and in that spirit let me just make an ask if you can take a second to give us a rating or a review or post about us on social media that all that stuff helps us uh, in the standings on the various podcast players out there in the rankings and that means that more people will discover us and uh, hopefully get interested in meditation and mindfulness and make a saner world so if you can take a second to do that i appreciate it if not no worries I also want to thank the team. We've got some fantastic people working on this podcast, including Ryan Kessler. He's okay. He's not the best, but he's okay. I'm looking at him through the glass right now. I don't want to say too many nice things about him. Uh, But Ryan Kessler, who is awesome, actually, and produces the show. Big thanks to Ryan. Also, Samuel Johns uh, from the 10% Happier side, who does an enormous amount of really hard and fantastic work. And he's, both he and Ryan are new to the team and have been just, like, I think, really upping our game in many, many ways. And Lauren Hartzog, who I haven't met because she's based in uh, Arizona but has been doing lots of great producing and editing on the show. So, Lauren, I look forward to meeting you. Thank you for all of your hard work. Thanks, everybody, again for for listening, and we'll be back in one week with more of this stuff. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
1: For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world altering decisions and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. pre-order the hidden history of the white house now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books
4: once upon a beat remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today